Ram Ram everyone, this is Raghu Marcus and this is Ramdas here and now and uh, glad to be here with you. I'm just back from uh, Maui actually in our winter retreat with Ramdas and Krishnas and Jack Cornfield and Trudy Goodman and Mirabai Bush and me and Robert Svoboda. Hopefully some of you were able to tune in because we live streamed or at least delayed live streamed uh, over last weekend from Maui. Uh, it will be available later on or in sometime next year in some fashion. It was uh, all around Becoming Nobody. You know, the film that we've been talking about so much and has been out in theaters is now going to be available mid-January 2020, and uh, make sure you're on the ramdas.org mailing list. If you're not, put your email in, and if you have put it in, check and see if stuff is going to the spam bucket, okay, because that happens a lot, and uh, just want to make sure you'll get informed of uh, the pre-release of it, or what are we doing? No, you can't pre-order it that's it you can pre-order it before christmas and it'll get shipped to you mid-january so look out for all of that uh what else before i get into this episode uh, we want to shout out to 1440.org our erstwhile supporters for the last couple of years on the network be here now network.com and uh I saw something that they're doing. That They do these wonderful weekend workshops uh, near Santa Cruz, just beautiful campus, uh, 1440 Multiversity. And this one's called Neurosculping to Manage Stress, Anxiety, and Depression. And uh, we all got a lot of that going on individually and in this culture these days. And Lisa Wimberger uh, is going to uh, take people through a five-step process of meditation and mental training designed to enhance the brain's natural neuroplasticity while helping to heal and rewrite deep stress patterns. Seems I don't know her. I want to have her on a podcast on mind rolling uh, because this looks, uh, you know, I'm completely into whatever help we all can get day-to-day to re-sculpt our uh, neuro... Uh, receptors, right? Just reform our habitual pattern. So what do we can do? This sounds great. So go to 1440.org and check that out. It's in January. And, um, and don't forget our other sponsor, not really a sponsor because we're, it's a nonprofit. So it's more of a supporter, uh, is uh, follow your heart. And they have that great veginase which uh, I don't know if anybody laughed at me last time I was touting this. I was saying how great that vegan mayo is. I'm, I made a wonderful egg salad sandwich with my vegan mayo, and people looked at me like, are you nuts? You're using vegan mayo on egg anything? Anyhow, I love it, and I don't care. So there you go. This, this veginase is absolutely fabulous, so... All right, that's it from the announcements today. Uh, this is part two, Ramdas here, of uh, Astral Fun and Games. Uh, but really, this talk he gives is around what devotional yoga is, what the guru is, his own experiences with Neem Karoli Baba, Maharaji. And uh, again, I, as you all know, I say this all the time, I've heard... Uh, these lectures, I mean, there's a, not a billion, but there's a lot of them over these last, what, 50 years of Ramdas, and uh, I still get engrossed. I couldn't stop listening, uh, and I need to because uh, time is so short. Um, but um, he talks about falling in love with the divine presence in whatever form um, and, and that what these beings are are doorways through the divine. Uh, and of course, uh, 
starting where you're at is so important. Not trying to be somewhere uh, you are not, we are not. It, it's uh, to be able to have the capacity to really absorb into the devotional path starts with the capacity that we have to, in any kind of relationship with another being. You know, that we're not completely projecting, for instance, uh, projecting onto a being that is love, light, compassion. But we don't really want to deal with the scary parts, which is the Shiva part in the Hinduism thing. Um, And then just the fact, of course, it's dualistic, uh, devotional yoga. And, uh, you know, it starts with our emotions, our human emotions, and, and redirects them to the divine. Um, and he talks about how most people who came to Neem Karoli Baba, to Maharaji, they came for worldly concerns. They needed uh, a job, a wife, a baby, a new house, or protect from this, that, and the other. Um, and I remember I went down to Kenchi one day to see Maharaji with a friend of mine. We actually walked over the hills. It was like a half day, well, a few hour walk. Uh, from Nainital to Kenchi, and uh, I met uh, this uh, Indian devotee that I knew, and he was sat us down, and he started talking about all the people that came to Maharaji strictly for worldly concerns, and he said, now, there are people and uh, that do come for the spiritual brass ring, sure, he didn't say that, uh, and that, the worldly concerns, he gives freely the secrets of the heart. That is something that is not given so freely, that is very precious. Now, he himself, Maharaji, we were sitting around uh, with some Indian devotees one day, and he looked at us, there was a few Westerners and a few Indians, and he looked at us, and he said to them, in which we were hearing through the translator, these people came all the way from America or the West to get the secrets of the divine. I, uh, I'm going to give it all to them. Okay, you, I give nothing because all you want is stuff. And he actually said that, and he was very, uh, as usual, um, critical. He'd be critical of all the Indians around him in some ways, and so uh, absolutely um, sweet to these young Westerners that came all the way from the, from America and Canada and Europe. Um, there's so many great stories in here that he's telling of his personal experience with Maharaji. And, you know, some of it was his, uh, also his understanding of this dualistic path and how it, one day he he decided he was just going to uh, become it and go inside and not pay attention to the apples being thrown around and the talk about uh, local village politics or whatever Maharaji was talking uh, about with the Indians. And, um, you know, it got into this whole thing around um, understanding the level of duality that happens with a guru because you are worshiping this divine form that has manifested itself. And at some time, Ramdas figured, okay, I got to be that now. And so then the conversation goes into uh, karma, our karma and grace one, taking action and receiving um, the grace of uh, the divine through a guru or or through circumstances, however which way it comes. And uh, pretty much Ramdas figured that they were one. And, uh, but uh, Maharaji would said, said to him, I w- this is not something to talk about in public. So he figured there was a twist there that uh, he thought he understood, but he said, now I'm not quite sure. Now, I uh, went and asked Siddhima one day, who is uh, the saint that uh, when Maharaji left, who appeared, although she had been sort of uh, not public uh, while we were there with Maharaji, that later she was. 
And she said, yes, they are one, but it is not a rational, there is no way to understand it rationally, how they are one. So this is, this is you know, maybe a discussion, <laughs> it'll take a whole, po- about five podcasts, right, to get to, to any kind of understanding. But Ramdas makes some great, great points in here, and anybody who still, by the way, write to us at uh, info at beherenownetwork.com or through any of them, info at ramdas.org, it'll eventually get to me. We can have a further dialogue about this. might be cool to see what people understand about what grace is and what the law is in terms of karma and... um, See if we can get any under, further understanding of this. So to understand the guru, Ramdas says, to realize that whatever it is that is manifesting through that being is A, outside of time, and B, above law. He's on the other side of karma, for it is actually the one, which means the one is, is another word for we can't name what it all is, God, Buddha, mind, whatever, the universal divine presence intelligence that's the best way i can get to it that manifests from from that plane of consciousness into form and that's where ramdas talked about all this karma and, and grace being one so i think that's a a good thing to deep down dig into for sure um deep down dig into uh the minute you start to awaken so this is a great thing for for everyone listening, the minute you start to reach out, you, you start to awaken, all kinds of beings on different planes of consciousness, including the guru, and everyone's got the guru, and he says, it's not important for you to know who your guru, guru is, it's important that they know you, right? <laughs> that makes sense. Uh, all these beings orient themselves towards you, and grace comes down. And what is grace? A one Nice description of grace. Grace is speeding up of the return to the divine. So I like that one. So another great talk. It's really around devotional yoga and the guru, but I guess we'll call it Astro Fun and Games Part 2 from Ram Das. And um, yeah, as I said, he, he tells some wonderful stories in, in, this, uh, in this talk. Wonderful stories around him being with Maharaj. You really get a feeling. Um, yeah, it's so good, so good, so good. So great to be here with you again. As I said, I just got back from our thing with, and Ramdas is hanging in there, believe it or not. He's going to be 89 in a few months, okay? And uh, he has so much willpower, I can't tell you all, to be here to share with people that he it cuts through all you know he's got all kinds of stuff going on uh with his body and uh, it just cuts through all that i mean he just absolutely somehow digs into a deep well and and uses that will to be here so uh pretty amazing and talk about grace so this is uh, Ramdas here and now on BeHereNowNetwork.com. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com and pick up on all the great uh, podcasts. There, David Nickturn's doing some guest stuff for us. Um, David plays uh, plays guitar for Krishna Das and also is a wonderful Buddhist teacher who just has a new book. Um, and creativity and uh, making a buck and spirituality uh, uh yeah take a listen to that it's really quite good also my mind rolling that i that i do just to tip you i just did something with elizabeth mattis Namgyal, who's married to a a rinpoche a westerner it's a fascinating story and she wrote a great book uh that might help with uh with our day-to-day in terms of understanding the interconnectedness of everything. See you next week. Ram Ram. Now you see, starting from where you start from, you're a human being, you're involved in interpersonal relationships, complicated life, you've got a good intellect, you've been studying and training it to to do a lot of discriminative thinking. How do you start from where you are and get free? Well, if you were going to use your heart, one of the things you would do 
is start to have relationships with things that are closer to, that are either on other planes or that will take you through to other planes rather than having relationships with things which are very bound to this plane. And thus you start to fall in love with Christ or you start to fall in love with Krishna or you start to fall in love with your guru. And these beings are like doorways through and they're a doorway based on what you got to start with, which is your capacity to have a relationship with another human being. Right? And you project Christ as this nice guy with, a, with soft hair and a soft eyes and a warm smile and very kindly person. And, and when he says, I come with a sword, you say, oh, well, you know, that's just a metaphor. That's initially. Later on, as you get deeper into this work, you start to love and deal with aspects of relationships with aspects that scare you. The sword part of Christ's message. The Shiva part in Hinduism. But devotional yoga at the lower level of bhakti is dualistic. It is dualistic. I love you, Krishna. And the stories about Radha and Krishna and the gopis are exquisite because, and if you read the Mahabharata or any of the holy books that are devotional texts, they are all these incredibly, they sound like a marriage court or something like that. There are these incredible convoluted emotional dynamics of love and fear and trust and hope and all of the human emotions, jealousy, jealousy, possessiveness. Radha keeps wanting to possess Krishna. She says, look, I'm the top gopi. I mean, and Krishna carries her around on his shoulders and says, you know, you're the one. And then just as she gets arrogant with it and ego, he disappears. And then she freaks. But it's all interpersonal. It's all interpersonal at that level. What it does is it starts with your human emotions and it works with them. And it just keeps allowing you to take that kind of energy and redirect it. That's really what the initial devotional process is. Prayer, which is the most common vehicle in the West is talking to a being that you anthropomorphize, you imagine to be another human being and you talk to it like another human being. And it's often characterized as a jealous God or an angry God or a righteous God or a kindly God or a compassionate being. You talk to Christ or you talk to Mary or you talk to God. And most people aren't ready to go beyond the interpersonal level of devotional yoga. And they stay at that level. And in India, almost all of it is that level. And their relation to Maharaji, the people that are around Maharaji, are primarily around a very kindly grandfather that has the power to give you, make Christmas every day if he chooses. And you're constantly dealing with this thing, am I good or am I bad? And loving him and opening to him and so on. And 99% of the people that come to Maharaji come to him for worldly concerns. Give me a son, give me a new home, make, get me a new job, right? It's incredible. It's like going to a king who has all the riches of the universe and asking him for pineapple. You know, it's very humble and beautiful, but it's also kind of stupid because you could get the whole ball of wax. And I used to have to discipline myself a great deal when I was with Maharaji not to be sucked in on the worldly level because he was so seductive. He was this great, <clears throat> I'm going to show you slides tonight of him, I think. And he was, have you, you can have his darshan directly. And he was absolutely this great teddy bear of a being who you just wanted to rub his feet and cuddle up and get under his blanket and all kinds of things. I mean, it, it brought out all the childlike qualities in you and they just, oh God, just to sit at his feet, you'd get into timeless space. But that's later. At first, all you'd get is he'd throw you apples. You know, people would bring him apples and he'd pick them up and throw them at people and everybody would laugh and he'd ask things like, do you have cinnamon in America? And uh, will you take me to America? And uh, 
it was all totally Mickey Mouse. You know, he'd pull your beard, he'd laugh at you. It was like totally hanging out in the most trivial sense. Drink your tea, you haven't drunk your tea, drink your tea, bring food, eat, drink, eat, drink, eat, drink. All we got was fed, all this crap, all the time. Porries cooked in grease, tea made with white sugar, potatoes, the main staple was potatoes and porries cooked in grease, right? For a vegetarian, I mean, you know, for health food addicts, it was, and his being handed to you by the guru, you know, by, by God itself is handing you, it's like, and the, you know, it's incredible. And the Leela, I mean, it was all Leela. It was all Leela. And you'd be caught in, that's the Leela, the Maya, the illusory quality, and you'd get completely lost in it. And at the same moment, you were cleaning up your game just by being around him because the love and the simplicity and the purity and the talking about God and the whole thing was creating a space which was affecting the thousands of lives of people around this being. But then there were other levels. And if you went to, if you went to Maharaji, like I go to Maharaji sometimes and I'd plan, see, I'm not going to get sucked in. So I'd sit down in a meditative stance. I'm going to fight the illusion. And I'd focus on my third eye and I'd close my eyes and he'd throw apples. I'd feel apples hitting my chest. And I'd just ignore the whole thing. Like, screw you, baby. I'm not being sucked in this time. You can go to hell. And I just sit there and I and I just focus in my third eye and suddenly my whole body would start to get filled with Shakti because I was demanding and I was getting overloaded for where I was at. And I'd start to shake like this, you know, and he would then sort of, I remember a couple of times he'd lie down, he'd pull his blanket over his head and he'd snore very loudly. And then he, and all the time, I would start to see him in all these different forms. It was just like the 11th chapter of the Bhagavad Gita. I was starting to move through planes of reality in which he existed because it turns out he's also Hanuman and he's also Shiva and he's also Padmasambhava. I mean, it goes on and on and on in terms of the astral lineage. Right? I'll explain that in a minute. And then he'd sit up and he'd say to the translator, ask Ram Dass how much money Stephen makes. And I'd be like, zonk, way out here, you know. And the man say, oh, I, Maharaji, I can't bother Ram Dass. He's meditating. His body stiffs. Bother him, bother him. Ask him how much money Stephen makes. And the guy would come up very apologetic, Ram Dass. And I'd hear it from like miles away. I was sitting up there with, on the top of Mount Kailash with Shiva in perfect meditation, just about to be fully enlightened. And this jerk is calling me down to ask me how much how much money Stephen makes. And I would hate him. Oh, God, the hate. You know? And I'd feel myself have to being pulled and pulled like a rope pulling me down. And I'd come back down to the physical plane and I'd say, $30,000. And then I'd try to go back up again. See? And he wouldn't let me do it. He kept bringing me down all the time because he knew I wasn't ready in that sense. Or he was greedy and he wanted to keep it all for himself. <laughs> But what I began to see was that Maharaji was like a set of doorways. And that if I focused on one, I was actually focusing, I was worshiping the doorframe. See, and I rub it and oil it and worship it and write letters to it and think of it and have pictures of the doorframe on my puja table, you know. And then after a while, I would see that it was just the doorframe. And I would see that there was, an, this is what the seven inner temples are talking about or the seven lights, or the menorah, or the seven chakras, or the seven planes. I mean, it's all the same imagery. The octaves, the, the game goes on and on and on about planes of consciousness. And I would go through the doorway and I'd meet Maharaji in a new way. See, and very pure beings would see him almost immediately, like one old train conductor came to visit Maharaji. He was a very pure man, very high, and he had his third eye open, and he walked in, and he walked over to where Maharaji was and he passed out cold. And when they revived him, he said all he saw was this 15-foot monkey standing there. See? He didn't see the body of Maharaji at all. He saw his astral identity. Right? And there are dozens and dozens of stories of people who were very close to Maharaji who would, like they'd see him suddenly leave them and rush into a room and as but before the door would close they'd see a tail going in behind him you know i mean there would just be these little ways in which 
these astral people would keep flipping from physical to astral imagery because the love of the guru is the way to go through the doorways. That is the vehicle, the devotion, the pure love keeps opening the door for you. Like um, that story of um, that uh, about Hanuman and the temple, the little Pujari. There was a, an old um, Pujari, a temple keeper. And what happens when you go to a little temple, they're just like um, consecrated statues by the side of the road in a little niche. And there's a curtain across them, in a little room sort of. There's a Pujari there and you go and you bring some sweets usually. And he takes the sweets and he goes behind the curtain and he rings a bell and he calls the Morti, the being that inhabits the Morti to take some of the food. They feed the Morti, they bring it. And then the Pujari takes some of the food off the tray and keeps it and gives it out to the poor or eats it himself later on. And then the rest of it he brings back and that is the gift that comes back from the Morti. And the Pujari's merely played the part of the intermediary, if you will. And he brings back the food and the people take the food and it's now consecrated food. It's been offered to God. That's what consecrated means. And by the way, you get into this game and you ultimately only eat consecrated food, only food that's been offered. You learn how to consecrate your food. That's what it, you begin to use everything like even eating as a vehicle for getting you tuned to God all the time and realizing your whole life is one of coming to God, of offering to God. Okay, so this old man had to go away. Somebody in his family died and he had to go back to his village. And there was nobody around to be the Pujari, but there was this very pure young boy of, I don't know, 14 or 15, who always hung around him, never go away. So he said, all right, I'll leave him as the Pujari. And he said, all you have to do is when they bring the sweets, you go behind and you ring the bell. And then um, Hanuman, the Murti, uh, you feed Hanuman and then you bring the rest of the sweets back out and give it to the people. So the man left and the boy stood there, this extremely pure boy, no guile at all. And people came and they brought sweets and he took them and he went behind the curtain and he rang the bell and Hanuman didn't take anything. And he didn't know that Hanuman, because he had never gone behind the curtain. So he rang the bell again and he got very angry because he was ashamed that Hanuman wouldn't take from him. And he picked up a stick and he said to Hanuman, you take these sweets, see? And the whole dish disappeared, right? <laughs> so he came back out with the empty dish and he said to the people, he took it all. And they beat him because they didn't believe either. See, they figured he had stolen it, right? And he kept it all. And when the old Pujari came back, he said, all my life, I waited for something like this to happen to me. It never happened, but this being was pure enough that it happened to him. It's that kind of a space, right? That kind of love or purity allows you to see more and more and more. But the game is you have to keep consuming what you see. You have to keep consuming all of the new levels, planes, images. You can't get stuck in them. You can get stuck for a little while, but then you've got to go on because who you are is incredible. You've been around again and again and again. You have previous incarnations by the hundreds. You were lots of interesting people. People come up and say, who was I in my last birth? I don't give a damn, not only who you were, but who I was. What difference does it make? It's not gonna liberate me. I only wanna know what's gonna free me. I'm not really interested in my own melodramatic storyline. That's like when Don Juan says, give up personal history. He means that astrally as well as physically. Give it all up. Don't even bother. The only value of it is if it is your particular sadhana to use these other planes to keep loosening holes on one plane so that you begin to know you were also an Indian princess and you were also a yogi and you were also a this, it puts this one into perspective. So you say, well, now I am also a, a lawyer in Memphis or whatever, right? It just keeps putting it all into perspective. Uh, there came a day when I was sitting opposite Maharaji in the temple and um, sitting across the courtyard from him. And all the people were over there, including many of the Westerners, and they were rubbing his feet and they were apples being thrown back and forth and much talking and laughter and frivolity. And I was sitting across the way 
watching this, and I had been meditating, and I began to see I've really been stuck on the doorposts. And really, I want to be free. I really do want to be free. I really just don't want more fun and games. And what am I doing hanging out around this guy? He's in my heart. I obviously can't get rid of him. Who he is, I am also. Isn't it time that I begin to know him in my own heart and stop with this externalization so much? And it was, wasn't intellectual the way I'm telling it to you now. It was the feeling that I am done because there's nowhere... Maharaj used to say, I am always in communion with you. Or I'll be with you in America. Did you think I'd let you do anything wrong? Or he'd say these little things, which you could take as just sort of nice sayings, unless you understood the level of the game in which it meant something entirely different. And I was sitting thinking, you know, I'm not going to run over and touch his feet. I love him from, I love him more than I love any other human being I've ever known. And still, that level of love isn't what it's about. And I was just sitting there reflecting on this with almost a feeling of being a um, heretic. I mean, it's kind of heresy in a devotional temple to think that thought. And at that moment, an old devotee of Maharaji, Maharaji whispered to the man, and the man ran over to see me. And he came over and he touched my feet. And that always used to freak me all the time. And I'd say, oh, Babaji. And I'd try to touch his feet. And I'd say, well, why did you just do that? He'd say, well, Maharaji sent me over. He said, go over and touch Ramdas's feet. He and I understand each other perfectly. And it was at that moment that he did it. And what he was saying to me by that act was, go, baby, go. You're doing fine. That was the way in which he was freeing me to start to know him inside myself rather than to be lost in the form. And it's very interesting because in my relation with Maharaji, which led to be here now, which led to all of the, except for about five of the Western devotees. Well, no, I'd say maybe about 20 of the Western devotees, but of the hundreds of Western devotees that had anything to do with Maharaji, they all came through my meeting with Maharaji in 1967. At least that was That was the connection, the public connection. During that five months, I saw Maharaji in total over four or five times. The total of it wasn't more than an hour and a half or two hours. Okay. And what he constantly did was I would come and I just settle in because he let everybody else sit with him for hours. And I would come. And I would come up and I'd bring my fruit and I'd put it down like I'd bring a dozen oranges. And he'd grab the oranges like he hadn't seen food for weeks. And he'd rip them apart and he'd eat eight of them. Just like I watched him eat eight oranges just like that. I said, what is he doing? You know, and they were stuffing oranges in my mouth and I was crying and he was crying. And I didn't know what the hell was going on. And they said, he's eating your karma. I thought that was nice. Right? Because that was one of his yogic thing, things. He ate people's karma. And he ate them by physically, the women of India would prepare food for the guru. That's a big thing to do. And he would eat the food. And somebody followed him around one day. This was far out. Because in Nanital, it's a very, the villages, the houses are very tiny. And you got to go up these very steep stairways and over roofs to get into other kitchens. And the whole thing is in very tight. From about four in the morning till about 11 at night. He went from house to house. Each ma had prepared an entire feast for Maharaji, knowing he'd be in town in the hopes he might come by. And the Indian feasts are really heavy. I mean, big quarries, grease, lots of grease, and mounds of kedgeri, rice with um, stuff in them, dal and rice, lentils and things. And he went and he ate 49 meals in one day. Now, he was vast, but it wasn't, at those days, he wasn't vast, and it had nothing to do with, because these beings can play with all this stuff. They, Maharaji, this is far out, Maharaji would, people would give him blankets, and then when he didn't want a blanket anymore, he'd make it too small. He'd just shrink it. And he'd say, what are you doing to me? You give me a blanket that doesn't go around me? And then they give him a new blanket. That was when somebody had a blanket to give to him. 
I'll just sneak in one digression. Since you're going to see slides, I'm just, and I'm showing you the devotional quality by conveying these stories. I think that's as good a way as all my intellectual wherewithal. Uh, let me tell you the blanket story. See, I was the oldest Western devotee of the current crop. There might have been some. He was supposedly 147 when he died, so he may have had dozens of crops before this one, but I was the recent crop. And all we brought him were apples, and we'd sing Sri Ram to him, because or Hare Krishna, because that's all you could do for him, because he didn't have anything. He had a water pot and a blanket. That was it. And people would build temples and stuff for him, and he'd drop by. But he owned nothing, and there was no way you could give him anything. It was absurd. But the inner, inner Indian devotees would give him blankets. And I was traveling around the world with Swami Muktananda. I was on tour, and we were in Australia. We were doing Singapore, Australia, <laughs> and Hawaii on that part of our tour. And we were at a little house in Melbourne, Australia, and everybody was bringing Muktananda gifts. And I so wanted to get something for Maharaji because I was just this yearning to, and I thought, why don't I get him a blanket? I mean, it's presumptuous of me that I would be high enough to bring him a blanket, but I'll risk it. What the hell, I'll buy a blanket, right? So I went in and I bought the most beautiful mohair blanket in the fanciest department store in Melbourne. And it was in a big plastic case and I came back bearing it into the house in Melbourne and Muktananda was standing on the steps and he thought it, I don't think he thought it was for him because he knows. He says, oh, what's that? I said, it's for my guru. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and I made a big thing of it. This is the blanket for my guru and I carried it on the airplane with me and I wouldn't put it in a bag and I wouldn't send it on, on the sh underneath in the plane because it, and I worshipped it every night, and I rubbed it, and I rubbed it with sandalwood stuff. And, you know, I mean, I was doing the thing, getting it ready to give to my guru. I mean, when you're a real lover, you know, I mean, you've all been in love probably. You know how mashugany you get. <laughs> so I um, came to uh, Nanital, which was funny because... Um, I came to Ganeshpuri, where Muktananda's ashram is, and I stayed eight days, which was sort of proper. And then I said, now I've got to go see my guru. And they said, oh, don't be silly. Stay on. And I said, no, I got to go. And I was very willful, and I left. And they were all telling me not to go. And I took the train north from Bombay to Delhi. The night I left, Maharaji appears in Bombay, calls up the head of the Muktananda ashram and says, where's Ramdas? Maharaji had never been in Bombay in his life, as far as I know. I mean, I never would have thought of him there. And they said, well, he's gone to look for you. And he said, he's a fool. He has no faith. Didn't he think I'd come for him? Which they loved, you know, that Ramdas was this faithless person, you know. I wouldn't have thought in a million years he would have come for me. You know, the whole thing was just a, a hype, a put on. So I went north and there was no Maharaji because he was in Bombay, supposedly. That's phony, too, because he used to appear in two places all the time, which was freaking everybody. Somebody would say, I just saw Maharaji in Delhi. You couldn't have. I just saw him in Nanital. It was that kind of. It was all Leela. It's all play. So I had the blanket put in a safe. Right. While I went off to do Vipassana meditation for three months. Two months, two months. Then I went on a yatra of all Shiva temples in southern India with Muktananda and a tour. And I didn't, then I went into a, a rent a cave for seclusion for a long time. And then finally, many months later, I came back to Nanital and I came up into the village. Maharaji was in town. And there was Krishnadas and Rameshwadas and Jagannath. And Jagannath's new girlfriend, who he had picked up at the Vipassana course, <laughs> and um, me, and Dwarkanath. Yeah, that was the group. And um, the, the day came when the blanket was going to be presented. And everybody, you know, I, the thing had been built up, so it was like uh, this was the moment when the transfer of the blanket, right? 
And uh, there was this little room Maharaji would interview people in or see them. It was called humorously his office. It just had a wooden table on it, in it and he'd lie on it. And you'd come in and you'd kneel at his feet. You know, you'd kneel by the bed and rub his foot if he extended it to you. Um, and usually you'd get in, you'd kneel down, you'd offer an apple, and you'd say, Jow, which means get out. See? And in a way, the word he said most often was Jow, 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 go, 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 go. And at first, I used to be, you know, why doesn't he let me stay? And then I realized the word Jow had, the way he was using it, it was very far out because most of us can't say to somebody, go away without feeling with withdrawing love. And what he was doing was saying, go, I am with you, go, go, it's okay, you can go, go, jow. He did it in such a way that it became like a caress, see? So um, we came in and I had taken the blanket out of the plastic case and I came in bearing the blanket and we all sat down. There was me and Dwarkanath and Krishnadas and Rameshwadas and Jagannath and Jagannath's new girlfriend. And I put the blanket next to Maharaji and then sat back and we all waited for the Leela. Now, what we all expected was he would pick it up and he'd look surprised see, and he'd put it around him and we had cameras and we'd take pictures and it'd be all cuddly. And he might even throw, give us the old blanket, right? Which you have a, a thread of, by the way. He might give us the old blanket he'd been wearing. We'd have his blanket and then he'd be surrounded in this one and we'd... And, He'd be wearing my blanket. What an ego trip. Oh, my blanket. And I could say, that's my blanket, Mark. <laughs> and he talked to us for a while, and we were waiting for the next, you know, nothing was happening. Finally, he turned slowly, this huge head turned, and he looked, and he reached over, and as if he were picking up a dead rat, <laughs> he picked up the blanket, and he moved it across the field, and he gave it to Juggernaut's new girlfriend. <laughs> and I freaked completely, right? I just, uh. and then he turned to me and he said to me, was that the right thing to do? <laughs> and after I swallowed, I said, perfect, all right? Since that time, Jagannath married Anasuya. They have two children. The blanket has lived with them all the time. It's one of the closest parts of our whole satsang. The babies have all been wrapped in it. It's a tremendously loved blanket in our community. <laughs> but the perfection of not clinging, of not clinging to the giving of a gift and the ego trip about giving and wanting to be appreciated and all of that. You see the beauty of a simple teaching, the exquisiteness of it? And you see how all that teaching is made possible by love, by that love of this being and the flow that exists between and how open you are to those teachings. If I didn't love him and he had done that, I would have sit around judging him for doing that. But the love made me immediately look for the teaching in it for myself. Perhaps the most powerful component of my relation with Maharaji was the depth with which he loved me and how contradictory that was with the image I had of who I was because I was certainly not lovable in the way he was loving me. And I had never been loved unconditionally before because there are very few human beings that exist that can love another being unconditionally. And I knew that Maharaji knew everything about my life. There was nothing shameful, disgusting, embarrassing, horrible that I could possibly hide from him. There was nowhere to hide. And he would look at me with such incredible love Sometimes I'd want to look behind me to see who he was looking at because it was so inconceivable that he could be looking at me. And for years, that was something I couldn't understand at all. And it's only recently when a lot of my own attachment has fallen away. Like yesterday, when I was handing out the beads to you people, what I was seeing was so incredibly beautiful. 
it was like I was seeing a succession of um, of <clears throat> saints and devas and angels and holy men. Each of you, I was seeing who you are. I was in another space and I was just seeing who you are, not who you think you are. Or I was seeing, let's say, another plane of who you are because who you are has no form. I was seeing other forms of you, more divine forms, if you will, more spiritual forms. And I was asking Maharaji and Hanuman to let you know who you are through these beads. And the feeling I was feeling as I looked at you and as I look at you is such incredible love. It isn't personal. It isn't love for you with who you're busy thinking you are, but that's all just your stuff. And there's no judgment about that. That just is your karma. That's the way it is. It's the way it is. I don't love that tree better than that tree because that's a different kind of tree than that. That's different and that's equally as beautiful. I just honor them. And the love flows. And what I've been learning how to do is to say to people, give me all your shit because it doesn't bother me, it goes right through me because all I see is that thing which is totally clear and luminous in you. And that's what I appreciate now was how Maharaji touched me. He touched me because there was no way I could convince him how corrupt I was. There was no way I could get him to reject me. To experience unconditional love liberates you. Simple as that. Because there's nowhere to hold on to your paranoia. There's just no way to do it. In the course of the journey through the planes, if that is your path through planes, as you let go of each plane, you meet Maharaji, you let go of that, of that body in this incarnation. You meet Hanuman, you let go. You meet Shiva, you let go. You keep letting go of form after form, loka after loka. Experience after experience. You do not get hooked on experiences. You get up into planes of causal planes where there's just thought forms and just light. You're still separate. You're still separate, but you are totally light. There's no personality. There's no heaviness. You can dance through every plane, every incarnation. You can see that you have an existence on all of them and they're all going along fine. And they're like ball bearing wheels. Every now and then you just touch it with a bit of consciousness and it keeps going. It takes very little consciousness to keep this whole act going you're involved in now. You are thinking you have to be full time behind it, but you don't. Like your heart's going pretty much without you thinking about it, making it beat. And it's that same level. It can get to the point where your thoughts are thinking without you making them think. And the whole thing goes on automatic. It all goes on base brain. It's like when you drive a car for most of you now. You don't sit thinking, now I'll press on the brake. Now I'll press on the accelerator. Now I must compute the centrifugal and centripetal force of the next curve. So I will make sure you, it's all happening. And all the time you're busy talking, making love, smoking a joint, looking out the window talking about holy books, listening to rock and roll music, whatever it is you do all the time. This you're driving a monster 70 miles an hour, making these incredibly complex decisions. Well, ultimately, your whole life, and when you, you're around a person like Maharaji, you see that at that level, it's all on automatic. And what happens is, often I can feel when I'm on more on automatic that what you when you come up to me, what you present in your vibratory rate, in your projection of who you think you are and who you think I am is what elicits what comes out of me. It's all an automatic thing. It doesn't have anything to do with somebody in here doing it. Well, if it has nothing to do with anybody inside that's doing it, is the guru just your karma? Just your projection. Is there such a thing as grace? Guru's grace? Is it whimsy? When you are on the devotional path, 
and you are around the guru, you often feel that it's grace and that he, is, he can do it or not. And you're saying, oh, Maharaji, do it for me. Look how pure I am. Do it for me. Please, Maharaji. But then you understand the laws of karma. The other day I talked about the reality sandwich. To even begin to understand the guru, you must understand, first of all, that whoever is, whatever it is that is manifesting through that being, is A, outside of time, and be above law. He's on the other side of karma. For it's actually the one that manifests through the Siddhaloka into forms. When I was with Maharaji one day, I couldn't help asking this question. I was just being bugged to the wall by it with my mind. And I said to Maharaji, aren't karma and grace the same thing? That was as close as I could get into asking the question. Maharaji's answer was, that's not a question I'll answer in public. That was all he ever said. So I concluded, well, I hit a very critical spot. But all the rest of these people, they're all different kinds of devotees. And he doesn't want to upset their apple cart because they think it's grace. Well, I know it's karma. You understand what I'm saying? I know it's law. And that he's just a function of the law, just like everything else is. So it's no big deal. So, you know, it's silly. The whole game is silly. And he just doesn't want to blow it here. He'll tell me later that I was right. So I went around for years telling everybody karma and grace are the same thing. But now I'm not at all sure about that. The closest I could come to the way I could say it in the moment is that um, beings that are outside of the law that have chosen to manifest on earth, take form, the only motivation they do it for, since they have no more personal karma, they do it in order because of collective karma, because of your suffering, not theirs. And you're even meeting them or reading about them or knowing about them is the way in which they are manifesting to relieve your suffering. You won't even notice them until you are ready to awaken. Or if you notice them, you'll notice them in a trivial sense, like the army will stop in front of the temple in India, the ashram, the temple. And uh, the army trucks will stop and 200 men will get out of the army trucks, which you wouldn't see in America, with the lieutenants and the colonels and all. And they all go into the temple, take off their shoes, go up, touch Maharaji's feet, get his blessing, go back, get in the army trucks and go on to war. Okay. Now, most of them are merely involved in a ritual, which is it's a tradition to have the darshan of any saint you find in the area making pilgrimages. They're not expecting much to happen. They're not particularly awakened. They're just going through a thing. It's a ritual. It's like when you eat the communion, the, uh, the uh, consecrated wafer. For some people, they are eating the flesh of Christ. And for others, they're eating a rather uh, papery wafer. For most of the beings that come around such a being, there is no business. And the guru does nothing. He's merely a form that just keeps manifesting, doing its thing. But there is some kind of contract or contact or activating process that is made when you reach towards God, when you reach towards freedom. When you, it's like they said in the Buddha, every night the Buddha would sit in meditation and somewhere between, I don't know, two and three or three and four or four and five, he would look out over all of the realms, all of the Buddha fields, not just this plane, but all the planes to see who was ready 
And that person, the beings that were ready, he would reach, he would send metta, or he would, he would do something, okay? Now, what is that something? That something is a speeding up. The only thing that I can figure out that a guru does is change the time dimension of the whole game. Because you are coming back to God no matter how long it takes. And because the guru isn't in time, the guru doesn't care. It's only you that care because you're the one that's stuck in time. You're the one that's suffering. The guru isn't suffering. So when you reach out and start to go back, that reaching out is what draws. It says the pure heart of a devotee is what draws the guru's grace. The grace isn't given arbitrarily. The guru is not just walking down the street saying, I'll give grace to that one and not to that one because I like the color of his hair. It isn't that game at all. You're the catalyst that activates the fact that that guru, that presence, speeds up your journey. See, the thing a guru never does is if you are headed towards the world, the guru doesn't turn you around and head you towards God. Guru lets you go. In that sense, a guru is very, very um, tough. But once you start to awaken and start to reach up, the minute you start to reach, it's very far out. All kinds of beings on the astral planes, including your, your guru, start to be oriented towards you. And the grace starts to pour down and a process starts to speed up. And this is all almost... Um, now, if your method doesn't involve noticing any of that stuff, it doesn't matter. They don't, don't need to be noticed, right? Like, it's not necessary you know who your guru is. The only thing that's important is that your guru know who you are. And what a guru sees is the pure, your pure heart. It sees your yearning, the truth of your being. Not any phony things, not blankets that are done phony, none of that the purity of your heart and what grace is then is the speeding up of the return and that is done in response to the purity of your yearning simple as that so in that way since the grace is still to be given by a being who is outside of law it is not the same as karma and at the same moment, it is your karma that leads you to yearn for God, to reach and yearn for God, so that it is not totally independent of karma either. Such a being, when such a being exists on earth, they are like a mirror in which there is no dust. But when you meet them, there's nothing they want from you other than your liberation, because that's all they're doing here. And they're not even attached to when that happens, since they don't live in time. They are merely an environment you can use in order to get to God. They make themselves available as a pure reflector of who you really are. And if you look clearly into them as a mirror, you see first yourself on the physical plane, then you might see yourself on the astral plane and plane after plane after plane until finally when you were looking at them, you see yourself looking at yourself, looking at yourself, and if you keep looking, they disappear and you disappear. And those are merely planes or locas of consciousness. And you will find when you look into someone else's eyes and there is love and trust, you will begin to go through the shift in planes of consciousness Often it will frighten you because some of them are very ugly and you can't stand. You get attached to your 10,000 horrible visions or your 10,000 beautiful visions, as the Tibetan Book of the Dead talks about the Bardo Thoto. Notice it, acknowledge it, enjoy it, and let it go. And keep going. Go beyond the beyond. Beyond the beyond. Go beyond anything beyond dualism, beyond yourself going, beyond trying, beyond faith, beyond hope, beyond belief, beyond gurus, beyond seekers. It's 
Ramana Maharshi says, ultimately you realize God, guru, and self are exactly the same thing. And then Buddha points out they're all an illusion anyway. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at Ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you.